This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Justin Kenny, and I will be your charming host for this week's episode. Now, this week's episode is actually a really exciting one because just last week, Nutshell Politics passed its one-year anniversary. Uh, so I've officially been hosting this podcast for a full year now. Uh, it's been an exciting year, a year of a lot of change and a lot of uh, learning. Uh, so I appreciate you guys sticking with me through that. And I have uh, a lot of exciting things planned for this upcoming year as well. I'm hoping to start bringing in a guest every once in a while and do more of a conversation interview style episode. And there's, obviously, there's a lot more international topics out there to cover. So keep listening. Tell your friends. Hit that subscribe button. And I look forward to another year of Nutshell Politics with you guys. And now because we did just pass that one-year anniversary, I am planning a bit of a special episode probably in a week or two's time. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but today's episode, we're going to be doing um, something I, I promised you guys last week or maybe two weeks ago. Uh, where I just update you guys on what's been going on with that peace conference with the Trump administration that took place in Bahrain between a lot of the Arab states. And uh, to kind of intro that, we're, I'm going to spend maybe 10 minutes, be a short little bit, giving background on the Israel-Palestine issue. Now, this is an episode I really want to do in, in kind of in full at some point. And the issue here goes back, obviously, millennia. So that is something that I want to do down the road. But today I'm just going to give a very brief 5 to 10 minute overview. And the reason I say it like that is I, I just want to be very clear that what I'm saying is just barely scratching the surface. So if there's things you think I, I left out about this issue, you're right, I have left things out. But I just want to give a little bit of background of why Israel and Palestine is an international concern, an international issue, international conflict at times. And uh, then we'll move from there into talking about this peace conference that took place in Bahrain just last week. Uh, it was something that I introed a couple weeks ago, and we're going to talk about actually how it went and kind of what results may have come from it and kind of what we can expect going forward. All right, so the roots of the Israel-Palestine conflict actually go all the way back to biblical times with the Israelite people living in this, in this region and then with the exile that took place and the, the Jews being kind of scattered around the world. And that ancient history is what I will go into in a future episode in, in much more depth. But from a modern historical perspective, we really see this conflict go back in the neighborhood of about 100 years or so. Prior to the 1940s, there was, there was a series of kind of large-scale movements of Jewish people from around the world all to one area, which at the time was a region known as Palestine. And prior to the 19-teens, uh, this was actually kind of owned and run by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but the Ottoman Empire ultimately fell in the, in, sorry, in World War One, And when that happened, Great Britain took over. And so Great Britain controlled this territory pretty much after World War One. This is part of the British Empire. And up until 
of the 1940s. Now, during this time period, this kind of 30-year period, a lot of Jews fleeing persecution in Europe, and especially as you get into World War II with the Holocaust and, and those issues, there were a lot of Jews who were fleeing what was some pretty terrible persecution from, from Europeans and from a lot of anti-Semitic groups across the continent. And so they were fleeing persecution and they wanted to establish a national homeland. And they actually considered a couple different locations, but the one that made the most sense was that ancient historical homeland where the, the Israelites lived 2,000 plus years ago. Now, at the time, this area, which again was called Palestine, it was not a country in and of its own. It was a territory that was owned by the Ottoman Empire and then late, obviously, by the, the British Empire. And this area was a majority... Arab and Muslim in terms of the population that lived there. There were some Jews who, who did, but it was a minority at the time. But as I said, because this was kind of the historical homeland going back thousands of years for the Jewish people, it was what still made sense. There were a lot of sacred lands to the Jewish uh, religious community. And so the British actually stated pretty early on through the Balfour Declaration that uh, I'll actually quote here, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and we will use our best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this objective. Now, this was something that they said shortly after World War One, when Great Britain moved in and took over the territory. But obviously, there was a lot of conflict and controversy over this because there were people living there at the time. So it took a little while, but the United Nations kind of came around to this, and especially as we get into the Holocaust, and we really see the type of persecution that the the Israelis or, or the um, the Jews at the time were were undergoing in Europe, it becomes a much stronger push for their own their own land. And a lot of those early plans were to kind of give each group part of the land, um, and in particular, without getting into too much detail. They actually do split up the land, and because the original Palestine was what we consider Israel today, but also included what we consider Jordan today. And the Jordanians and the Palestinians are basically the same ethnic group. They're the same ethnic background. They're the same people group. And so when, when they originally split up the land, the Palestinians were given Jordan, or what becomes Jordan, and Israel was given to the Israelis. But uh, the original kind of territory was a little bit smaller than what it is today, and that's because there was a lot of resistance in the land over this territory because there were a lot of people that were kind of displaced when the Jews were given this homeland of Israel. And so there were several wars over the territory. And so the land that we think of as Israel today, the, the borders there, are largely the outcomes of two of the wars in particular. Uh, there was a war waged in 1948. This is like right after the land was established and given to Israel. And the reason for this, again, was that when the Jews were given this homeland, the Arabs who already lived there and some who lived in kind of neighboring countries felt that it was very unfair and they didn't accept this new country. And so this 1948 war happens. And when the 1948 war ends... The Gaza area is controlled by Egypt, and the West Bank area is controlled by, by Jordan. And then you jump forward about 20 years, almost 20 years, and there is another war. This is the, the Six Days War that you'll sometimes hear about. Basically, there were quite a few Arab countries who all kind of um, ganged up together and decided to, to attack Israel. Israel saw them coming and managed to actually get a first strike in, particularly on Egypt, and Israel kind of swept through countries uh, in the Middle East all by themselves. And in doing so, 
Israel takes over several new territories, including Gaza, including the West Bank, uh, including the Golan Heights, and including actually the Sinai Peninsula, which today we know of as being part of Egypt. That entire peninsula was actually held by Israel after the Six Days War. Now, the, Israel does, as a kind of a gesture of goodwill, decide to give the Sinai Peninsula back, uh, but they keep the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights. And in particular, the West Bank and Gaza Strip, both of those territories are home to large populations of Palestinian people, uh, Arabs, Muslims, and kind of that Palestinian ethnic group. And eventually, in 2005, Israel pulls out of Gaza. Now, they still in name, control the territory. It's still technically a part of Israel, but they, Israel really more or less leaves it alone in 2005. Uh, but soon after this, a terrorist group known as Hamas starts to take control there, and they actually start to win elections. And this group is one that is pretty well known for using violence in whatever way possible to achieve their goals. And so since Hamas took control of, of the Gaza Strip, Israel has basically tried to hold Gaza at bay with, with a blockade, which means that it very severely controls the borders and limits who can get in and who can get out. And most of the people, uh, there's about one and a half million Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip. This makes life very difficult because Israel controls all those borders because they're very concerned about the, the terrorist group that essentially controls the Gaza Strip. And so it controls all entry and exit crossings. Uh, into Israel anyway. There is a crossing point into Egypt on the other side. Um, there's no airport there. Access is very restricted, so, you, so goods kind of in and out is pretty limited. There's a lot of infrastructure that is missing in, in Gaza in that area. And because businesses can get very few of their products kind of out to sell, the economy in the Gaza area is very, very minimal. And there's large numbers of people who are employed, or sorry, unemployed in this area. And Israel justifies this by basically pointing to the violence that kind of regularly comes from the Gaza area. Uh, the Palestinians obviously don't have an army of sorts, but because Hamas is a terrorist group, and actually they have some outside uh, help from other nations and other groups, rockets get regularly fired from Gaza into Israel on an almost daily basis. You know, a rocket gets fired into Israel from Gaza. And so Israelis who live in kind of those border towns near the Gaza Strip are very used to, at this point, having to run and hide in bomb shelters and kind of adapting their lives around dealing with rocket fire on a pretty much daily basis. And so Israel points to this and says, look, as long as they're still doing this, we can't cut back on this blockade. And so in those years since Israel withdrew their troops in, again, 2005, there have been a lot of hostilities between Israel and the Gazan, or the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip area. And over the years, there have been a couple flare-ups of this. In 2008, there were about 1,300 people that were killed as, as Israel uh, sent forces into Gaza to try to, to take out Hamas and to stop some of this rocket fire. In 2014, uh, over 2,000 people were killed. There was a, a kind of a 50-day period of violence just about five years ago until they managed to come to a ceasefire again over this this uh, violence from Hamas and the rocket fire and Israel sending, sending troops in. And so over the years, this has become a really big deal kind of the international community because there's kind of a, a state of constant violence and there has been for decades in the Gaza Strip area in particular. Now, this has also created international issues because of how different countries recognize 
Israel's right to exist. There's a lot of countries who who say that they should not exist at all, that it should be given back to the Palestinians. Others recognize certain border lines. Sometimes you'll hear about the pre-67 borders, which is Israel without Gaza, without the West Bank, etc. Um, there's also concerns about Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is a sacred city for both Jews and the Muslims, uh, as well as Christians. And if you ever visit Jerusalem too, the city is actually pretty divided at times. You, you go into like the old marketplace and it's all divided up very interestingly. But all of this leads to a lot of tension in this region, especially the Gaza Strip, but really the whole of Israel. And that's not even getting into the West Bank. Now, the West Bank is is also a Palestinian territory. It is largely run by Palestinians, uh, but, but Israel does still technically exist there as well. They haven't pulled out of the West Bank like they pulled out of Gaza. Uh, but the West Bank is also not ruled by Hamas. They're actually ruled by a different Palestinian body called the Palestinian Authority, or the PA. Still, though, because of the violence that happens in Gaza, Israel has a, a pretty big wall, and they really do still control the border with the West Bank. And so you kind of end up with two sides here. You have the Palestinians who say, you know, they're suffering. They said that they claim they're under an occupation. Israel is very restrictive. You'll frequently hear the word apartheid used. Whereas Israel says it's, it's really only acting in self-interest to, to protect itself from violence from Hamas and groups like that. And that they were, they were rightly given this territory. They then rightly won territory in war, which historically has been recognized as a legitimate way to, to gain territory. And then since that point, there's been so much violence coming from these territories, these areas, these couple different areas, West Bank, Gaza, etc., that Israel is simply trying to protect itself. So you have these kind of two sides to the argument here. And since, again, pretty much since the 40s, but really since a lot more recently than that, we have seen a lot of different issues take shape here, including you know, what should happen to the Palestinian people, what should happen to refugees who are suffering in these areas, um, what to do about Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Uh, when Israel con con fully controlled these territories, is, uh, they set up a lot of settlements into which Jewish families moved. Uh, so how do they handle those type of settlements? How do you split up Jerusalem? Whether or not you should create a one-state or a two-state solution and kind of incorporate both the Israel and Palestinian territories into one unified state, or if you should create a, pa a second Palestinian state. And again, remember too, uh, Jordan is itself kind of a Palestinian state. And so over the last... 25 plus years in particular, there have been on and off peace talks about how to settle this. And so going forward, the future here is is very murky. To put it mildly, the situation here is not likely to be sorted out and or solved anytime soon. But this conference that I mentioned that just took place last week in Bahrain is part of a new U.S. plan to establish peace or to move towards peace in this region. And we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break here. But on the other side, I want to talk about that conference and a little bit about kind of what the outcome was, uh, who was there, who was not, and maybe where this might go going forward and really what the importance of that conference was. Uh, so stick with me and I will be back with you guys on the other side of the commercial break. Uh, and I'll talk to you in just a minute. Welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. Again, this is Nutshell Politics, and my name is Justin Kinney. 
So before the break, we were talking a little about the history of Israel and Palestine. And like I said, that was a very short overview. I'm sure there are things that I missed. And I would I do have on my list a plan to kind of go through the whole conflict in a lot more detail in the future. But hopefully that gave you a little bit of an overview and kind of a background on where we are today. And so now we're going to jump into talking about the peace conference that just took place last weekend in Bahrain. So I talked about this conference but before it happened, about I think it was two weeks ago now, and talked about what was expected and kind of some of the countries that were expected to be there and which ones weren't. And now that it has happened, I want to kind of give an update on what happened uh, and maybe what to expect going forward. So again, just a reminder, this was a peace conference in the country of Bahrain, which is a Gulf state in, in the Middle East. And it is a very small country just off the coast of Saudi Arabia, pretty close to Qatar as well. And this was the setting for the United States unveiling an economic peace plan that we have for the Palestinian territories. So Trump, and in particular Jared Kushner, uh, who's Trump's son-in-law, and he's a, a senior advisor to the administration, have proposed a peace plan that is designed to help boost the Palestinian economy. And so basically what they're doing is they're approaching this conflict from a very economic perspective. Obviously, they do have uh, political aspects to this plan as well, but this conference was, was about the economics of it. And again, the whole purpose here is to try to, to rebuild the Palestinian economy, infrastructure, schools, these types of things. And so all the various Arab countries in the region were invited to this, this conference. Now, I do want to clarify one thing. When I did this episode a couple weeks ago and we talked about the upcoming conference at the time, I mentioned that Israel was expected to attend. They had not been formally invited yet, but they were expected to attend. In fact, it actually turns out they did not attend. Uh, Israel was a little too busy f uh, focusing on a pretty major national election they're gearing up for in September. And so they, they did not attend the Bahrain conference as was expected. But this was still a pretty major deal from a lot of different perspectives here. Because as I mentioned kind of before the break, this impasse that we've come to between Israel and Palestine is probably one of the major or one, one of the most unsolvable problems in the world for the last century or so. And this proposal that's been put forward by the Trump administration and through Jared Kushner is a little bit unique because most of the time proposals for a solution to this this issue starts with the politics or the religion side of things instead this one as i said really focuses hard on the economics and so one of the driving features of this plan is a 50 billion dollar investment push to go into roughly 170 plus infrastructure projects over the next 10 years in the region. Now, a good chunk of that, a little over half of it, is earmarked for the West Bank and Gaza specifically, and then the rest with projects in Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon, kind of the surrounding countries that would help out. And the idea here is that this, this sudden injection of funds will allow the West Bank and Gaza to access international markets more readily and really boost their economy while also improving a lot of the basic infrastructure of those two territories, you know, upgrading electricity, uh, the water supply system, telecommunications, roads, schools, etc. And so the plan is projected to double the Palestinian GDP over the next decade and generate uh, close to a million new jobs in the area, which would reduce the unemployment, which I said is a pretty big problem in Palestine, significantly. 
Now, the point of this is to get some of the Arab countries really involved, in particular key players in, across the Arab world, the private sector, Arab businessmen, to raise that money that's necessary so that the money isn't coming from the West. Uh, the idea here is that Palestinian government officials would be a lot less likely to approve the plan, uh, and the Arab countries in particular would be a lot less likely to support the plan if it was seen as the West pouring all this money in, because that's seen as a form of influence. But if we can raise the money from the Arab countries in the region, this proposal has a better chance of being successful. Now, of note, uh, I mentioned this in, a couple weeks ago as well, the Palestinian Authority has refused to show up to any of these sorts of meetings. And so they, they boycotted the event. They believe that the the proposal still favors Israel. And they, they believed this before they even knew what the proposal was, I should point out as well. But they, they think the U.S. is just too aligned with Israel to really put forward a proposal. And they're not interested in any sort of plan that doesn't really involve the destruction of Israel itself. So this was a meeting basically between the United States and a lot of Arab countries, their finance ministers, businessmen, and the like. And it's really heavily focused on the economics. Kushner said as part of his talk, he gave him Bahrain, you know, today is not about the political issues. We'll get to them at the right time. Obviously, you can't solve this problem solely through economics. Eventually, we're going to have to kind of combine both economic and political and probably religious and social issues as well. But the economic uh, components of this Middle East plan for the Palestinian territories, I think, puts out kind of a, a good starting point for a lot of where the U.S. hopes to go with this in the future. But one of the um, biggest issues the U.S. is going to run into is the U.S. will be pretty much embroiled in our own presidential election, which obviously doesn't take place until the next November. But within a year or so, a lot of people, especially across the Arab world, will be waiting to see if Trump wins again in 2020 and sticks around the Oval Office to, to complete this plan, or if it looks like he's going to, to lose and it'll be somebody else entirely, at which point the plan you know may be cast aside. So there's a lot here that is still very much up in the air. But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think a lot of people tend to miss the point of, of why this conference is so important. And I think there's, there's a couple elements to this. First is that a lot of times this, this is being treated as a political conference, but really it's mostly about economic development. Uh, and Saudi Arabia's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, he, uh, he basically said as much. He said, it is not a political conference as much as it is an economic development conference and that people are reading too much into it. But the bigger issue here that I think a lot of people, particularly in the media, just completely miss is that true peace between Israel and Palestine is always a long shot. And the Trump administration knows this. Kushner knows this. Trump knows this. Everybody knows this. I mean, obviously, if it happens, everybody would be very grateful to it, but nobody's really expecting that. Instead, what, what they're doing is that they're establishing better relationships across the Arab world and really trying to show and to demonstrate to them, not, not even to Palestine specifically, but to the rest of the Arab world, that they're, that they're committed to, to helping find a solution and to do so in a way that doesn't involve the U.S. or the West just completely coming in and stamping all over everything. And so this was a very low-risk move by the Trump administration. Now, on the Trump administration side, uh, Kushner has called the, the conference in Bahrain a tremendous success. And he believes that this was something that really helped lay the groundwork for, for more discussions like this to come. And indeed, it does kind of seem like the plan was, was well-received, uh, if not necessarily enthusiastically. But there were a lot of kind of Arab world 
business executives, investors, finance ministers, uh, heads of you know, various international financial or economic organizations who attended. And while they are, there is a lot of still uncertainty about the actual viability or the achievability of the plan, this is kind of a new approach that hasn't been done before, at least in, in this much detail. And I think the fact that a lot of these countries were even willing to show up to talk about it is a pretty good sized step in the right direction here. Uh, obviously, and Kushner and Trump have acknowledged this as well, a political so solution is ultimately going to be needed as well. But by setting kind of a groundwork for what is economically plausible and, and what kind of they're looking for, I think deserves a little bit of commendation here for being kind of unique. Uh, it, you know, people have been, actually the United States in particular, has long sought some sort of peace plan here. Pretty much every administration since the founding of Israel has tried some sort of peace plan, but it all focuses very heavily on uh, the diplomatic side or the, po the political side. And a lot of the same talking points, a lot of the same solution suggestions keep getting repeated you know, every year, and yet nothing has really ever been accomplished. So whether or not this economic plan works and Again, there's reason to be skeptical of this, uh, in particular because Palestine hasn't signed off on it, Israel wasn't there, and none of the Arab countries uh, jumped at it right away either. But there is something different about this particular type of proposal. And to be honest, whether you see this conference as a huge success or a massive failure, I'm always very encouraged when I see people thinking outside of the box uh, on this, on this, well, actually on it, really any issue, but in particular on this issue, because this is one that's been going on for, for so long with virtually no ground being made up. And so it was encouraging to me to see so many Arab countries want to be there and want to show up to talk about it, want to be part of the discussion, even if nothing practical kind of came out of the conference. Uh, now, that said, there were some countries, obviously, that were not there. The Palestinian territories, which, which I guess isn't a country, but they boycotted the, the summit. They boycotted the conference, and they called on other Arab states to not go. Iran and Iraq, neither one uh, showed up as well. Actually, there was a huge protest in Iraq over this. Uh, the Bahrain embassy got stormed on... Um, Thursday night last week, and they kind of took down the flag above the embassy, and they replaced it with a Palestinian flag, and it was this this huge attack. Uh, nobody was hurt in it, but it was kind of a standoff between these Iraqi protesters and the police who were trying to protect uh, the Bahrain embassy. But they were protesting this conference taking place in Bahrain. They thought it was inappropriate, and they're very much on the side of the the Palestinian people here. So they. They listen to Palestine and the Palestinian Authority, which, as I said earlier, is the kind of ruling body in the West Bank part of, of Palestine. They also were very, very down on this. As I said, they boycotted it, but they also claimed that the conference was a stunning failure and there was policies of punishment and intimidation used by the Trump administration, etc., etc., uh, which is to be expected coming from the Palestinian Authority. But it, it does need to be mentioned because the Palestinian territories are where most of this plan would be implemented. And so getting them on board, at least in part, is probably something that's going to need to be done at some point. But again, because this plan is designed to have the Arab states be the ones who pour the money into the infrastructure, the Trump administration, I, I believe here, is trying to... Not uh, appease is probably too strong of a word, but they're they're trying to to ease some of that tension by working with Arab states in the region. 
But one of the most interesting things out of this whole conference actually has nothing to do to me anyway with, with the content. It actually has more to do with the, the relationships across the Middle East. Historically, what we've seen is that most Arab countries, actually pretty much all of them, have followed the lead of the Palestinian Authority over the years. And yet in this particular case, we saw the Palestinian Authority issue um, a, a strong urge to boycott the conference to all of the Arab states. And yet quite a few of them did not listen. And they actually did show up for this conference. And we have seen this thawing of a relationship between the Arab states and Israel and kind of a, a, a tensing of relationship with the Palestinian territories in a couple different cases recently. As I've mentioned before, Jordan and Saudi Arabia have both kind of had small steps that show they may be thawing towards Israel. And so the relationships overall across the region do appear to be shifting ever so slightly. And so I think that's actually probably more the more intriguing piece to come out of this conference is that a lot of these Arab countries did not follow the lead of the Palestinian Authority and instead appeared at least willing to sit down and be part of the discussion. Now, it is probably at this point silly to expect much of anything from these Arab countries beyond kind of basic flirtation with the idea of working with Israel. But the fact that they're even willing to do so at all, I think, is something that would not have happened a couple decades ago but is something that does appear to be heralding a, a shift in the Arab world in terms of how they view Israel. And a lot of it probably has to do with, with the idea that they're starting to see Israel as less of an existential threat to their region in comparison with a country like, like Iran. A lot of the countries in the Middle East have been very unhappy with the way Iran has been uh, progressing lately. And so I think by virtue of seeing them as maybe a larger existential threat than Israel, there may be some broader political perception shifts taking place here. Uh, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode. I hope that was, uh, was really interesting, good update on what's going on with this conference. And again, I, I would love to do a, a whole episode on Israel and Palestine sometime down the road. I'll probably pick a week in the next few weeks when uh, there's a little bit less to talk about on the international politics stage, more of a slow week. I can jump into that topic, but this is a, a topic that has been really existing in some form or fashion for close to a century, going back to when Great Britain took over and the British Empire took over the Palestinian area from the Ottomans and really hardcore since Israel became a state in the 1940s. And so this is an issue that has really been seen as, as probably one of the most unsolvable problems in the world today and has been for you know 70 years give or take and so anytime we see movement on this issue it, it becomes a pretty big deal uh, and so i would encourage you guys just to keep keep paying attention to this it may turn out to be nothing it may turn out to be a really really big deal um, but either way i do think there's a lot of intrigue here that i uh, can really grab grab your attention and there's a lot of really interesting tidbits here a lot of different aspects of this conflict that really stand out. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out for this week's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, my uh, Twitter username is Justin R underscore Kenny. You can find me, you know, hit that follow button, follow me. I'd be happy to continue the conversation there about this topic or any other. You can send me a direct message on there. Uh, I'd love to talk with you more about it. 
If you don't use Twitter or you'd like to reach me in another way, you can find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. You can find me there. Again, hit that, that follow button and that like button, and you can reach out to me that way as well. Uh, on top of that, as I said, it's an author name. Please do check out my two fiction novels that are out there on Amazon, both paperback and Kindle. One's called Precipice. One's called Splintered State. Uh, both of them have gotten great reviews, and I'm really excited about those. And so please go check those out. Those books are something I'm very proud of. So, so go check those out on Amazon, paperback, and Kindle. Neither one is very expensive, so you can find them on there, uh, especially if you read on Kindle. Now, if you would like to support this podcast in any way, support me, you can find my Patreon account online. But if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, please just get in contact with me. You can do it through Facebook or Twitter or, or anything else. Uh, it doesn't matter. I, but I'd be happy to talk with you more about advertising possibilities as well. And if you have a topic you'd like me to try to tackle on one of these episodes in upcoming weeks, please reach out to me and tell me about it. I'd be happy to, to talk with you about that or to add it to my list to, to jump into in a future episode. Uh, but with that, I will talk to you guys next week here on Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.